Thank you, Rosie. Um, let me pray for us one more time. Father, we pray that this afternoon as we open your word, that you would speak to us. Father, we pray that you'd help us to listen to what you have to say and respond in a way that you would have us do so. Amen. Well, um, think very carefully about the last time that you received a letter. Um, a letter, an envelope with your name on it, came through the door, dropped on the mat. Can you have a think? What was it? If you're anything like me, you don't get very many letters. And when you do, they're from banks or mobile phone companies or worse. And they normally have their logo printed on the outside. If you hadn't noticed that now, you certainly will next time you uh, get a letter from the bank. Um, That kind of spoils the excitement of working out who it's from. And you see the logo on the outside of the envelope and you go, ah, definitely don't want to open that right now. But there's something quite exciting about Christmas, isn't there? One time in the year when you just know that the odd letter comes through the door and you see handwritten your name, and it drops through the door, and you pick it up, and you go, everyone does this, I'm sure. Whose handwriting's that? Oh, I'm sure that's my sister's handwriting. Is it? And then you, I don't, I, you look at the stamp, look at where it was, you try and work out where it's come from, who could it be, and then inevitably you open up, and the first thing you do is you go right down to the bottom, and you go, ah, from Rachel, it was my sister. You go right to see who it's from. And it's funny, isn't it, really? Because our convention of writing is pretty stupid. Because the first thing everyone wants to know when you receive a letter is who is it from? And so we do that. We, it drops on a mat, you pick it up and you go, where did it come from, where does it come from? You open up and you go through all that's written. Uh, dear so-and-so, blah, 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 all through the message, all, all the way down to the bottom. And you go, ah, oh, yeah, it's from them. And that's our convention. Now, the normal convention for Paul was pretty different. I don't know if you noticed there as we looked and started our book. Um, the convention for Paul was different. Just have a look down. Uh, verse 1, it begins with Paul, the sender. Verse 1, Paul, the sender. Verse 2 to 5, you've got the kind of subject line of what he wants to talk about. The headline of the message. Verse 7... There you've got the recipient, do you see, verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy holy people. And then, verse 8, have a look, here's his greeting, grace and peace to you. That's kind of Paul's normal convention for writing letters. You can see that as you look through the other letters that he wrote. It's um, first, he introduces himself, Paul, then he introduces the Romans, the people he's sending to, and then he introduces something of the message in there in, there in between. And then he's got his greeting, grace and peace to you. And this afternoon, as we introduce the letter, as we work out where we're going for the rest of the year, that's all we're going to do. Introducing Paul, introducing the Romans, introducing the message. So first, introducing Paul, our sender. Have a look at verse 1. Here's how he describes himself. Servant of Christ Jesus. He describes himself like a slave to his master, Jesus. A man under the authority of his master, Jesus, called to be an apostle. 
That's what he calls himself. I don't know, maybe you'll remember Paul's story. He was commissioned by Jesus in Acts 9. He got the direct authority from Jesus to be set apart for the gospel. And we see how his life was transformed. He was set apart. His life was given over to taking out this good news of Jesus. He was beforehand completely opposed to Jesus. In fact, you can look at his story in Acts uh, chapter 9, but this is the the first sentence of Acts chapter 9 that describes this um, meeting. Meanwhile, Saul, which was his name, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That was where he was. But look at how he describes himself now in verse 1. After meeting Jesus, he was called by him to belong to him and be set apart for him. Do you see? He is sold out to Jesus. His role's unique in going to the Gentiles. And so this is who he is. He's all in for taking the gospel out. Now, just to place us for a minute, this afternoon as we set up the book, let's just have a look at a little bit, a short bit of New Testament history, just so we can get our bearings on where we are since Jesus and what's happened. Just a few little maps and dates. So really roughly, um, around about, within a few years uh, of 30 AD, a few significant things happen in New Testament history. You have Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and his last words in Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. See, from this point, around 30 AD, everything's pretty Jerusalem-centric, right down here in the bottom right-hand corner. Then Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit enables people to speak in different languages, to go out to the ends of the earth, as um, Jesus has said in Acts 1 verse 8, with the good news of the gospel. Just stay there on the uh, first slide for a second. There we go. So what's clear about Paul is that he's so clearly grasped the good news of Jesus that what he's um, in his interaction with Jesus there, for the first 10 years of his life, he stays around this um, blue rectangle around here, but he's completely transformed what he's doing from going from persecutor to proponent of the gospel. He's gone, gone from all against it to completely for it. Now, in the first um, few years, he sticks around here. Now, at the very same time, this red line is um, a journey, something of a journey that maybe people from Pentecost would have taken out to Rome. So Rome is the top left-hand corner. That's how the gospel has got out to Rome. People at Pentecost that have um, been enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak that language have gone out. That's happening all at the same time. We don't really track that, that, that story in the gospel, in the um, narrative here. What we see is more around here. But that's happening all around the same time. So then, at 44 AD, here's the next slide, Paul goes on three big missionary journeys that the New Testament accounts. Here's the first, 45 to 48 AD. Um, Here's the second, the green line, uh, roughly 48 to 51 AD. 
And here's the third, purple line, 52 to 57 AD. So that's what's happening um, since 30 AD. You've got 27 years where largely the New Testament's focused on Paul. And what we see is, is going further and further west. It's significant as we pick up this book of Romans for two reasons. First, because Paul is clearly going further and further in each of his journeys to take the gospel out to the ends of the earth, west particularly to the Gentiles. Paul was given that charge of going to the Gentile world. But second, at the point of writing this letter, um, is about 57 AD, and here we are, Paul is in Corinth, and he's writing to Rome, he's writing west to Rome, but if you don't notice, through his um, journey so far, he's not made it yet quite as far as Rome. So Romans is our letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome that he's not yet been to. He's coming to the end of his third missionary journey, and he's going back to um, back over here, but he's not actually been to see them before. Now, as we read through, we'll see that's quite remarkable because of how much he knows about them, how much he cares about them, how much he has to say about um, to them, and the fact that he's desperate to go there. That's Paul, our author, and introducing Paul. Now, introducing the Romans. The church in Rome would likely have been founded by people, like I said, that had gone from Pentecost, learned the language, and gone out to um, Rome with the good news about Jesus. But in 49 AD, the Jews had been expelled from Rome by the Emperor Claudius. And so the church in Rome that would have been largely Jews come over to Rome, mix in with Gentiles, would have been emptied of all the Jews. And so it would have been largely Gentile. We know that. If you want to have a look in the story in Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila, they talk about being kicked out of Rome and because of this um, decree by Claudius. But Paul, as I said, hasn't been to this church in Rome. But just have a look down at the way he talks to them. Have a look down at verses 8 to 15 about how emotionally invested he is in them. Verse 8, he's thankful for them. Verse 9, he constantly remembers them in prayers. Verse 10, he wants to go there. Verse 11, he longs to see them. Verse 13, he wants them to know that he's planned to come. See, Paul, he's emotionally invested in this church. He's committed to them because of his role of going out to the Gentile world. He's sure that he can go and encourage them. He's sure that there's a harvest for him for the gospel in Rome. It's clear from what Paul writes that he deeply cares about this place. But it's also clear, just have a look down at verse 6, it's clear that he's writing to Christians. Just see what we can see there. Verse 6, called to belong to Christ, he describes them. Verse 7, loved by God. Verse 7, called to be his holy people. They enjoy grace and peace from God. This is a church of Christians. Even more amazing, look at verse 8. It seems that this is a thriving church. Their faith is being reported all over the world. And so 
Maybe the reason that Paul has such emotional investment in this church is that Rome is a largely Gentile city. This is a largely Gentile church called to belong to Christ in an influential place that Paul's convinced he can go and encourage. And maybe as well he sees that they could be a crucial stepping stone further into the Gentile world, further going west as we see in his travels. That's the Romans. Well, introducing the message, have a look down at what we see of the message. Verse 2 to 5 is a bit like his subject line. Do you ever get those emails where the subject line is not really just the subject line? If you um, have a look down your inbox, the next time you get to it, maybe you'll notice. Often people like to use the subject line to get straight into the message, capture your attention, or maybe even say something a bit snide. Um, it's pretty common looking down my uh, subject lines in my email inbox this week. It's like the function of the subject line has been slightly forgotten. It no longer just gives you a headline of what's to come. It's to really get stuck in. Now, the subject line is obviously just to introduce what the message is all about. Apparently, 47% of emails are opened based on the subject line alone. That's probably mostly from uh, uh, companies that are trying to get you to open their emails that aren't just kind of a friend sending an email. Um, Because of this, marketing and communication firms have obviously done lots and lots and lots of work about the algorithms of words and phrases and and, and tactics of getting that line right. Um, They focus very carefully on open rates. That is the number of emails, uh, well, the percentage of emails that go into an inbox that are opened and then further how long they're open for and what links are clicked and you can go further and further, apparently. Um, But there's two... Well, there's, I, I've read a number of top 10 uh, uh, subject lines for open rates this week, very sadly. I know that's some people's jobs, but it's not normally mine. Um, but uh, here's the top two uh, I read. First is FOMO subject lines. That is fear of missing out subject line. Something like, hurry, there's only one more day of ticket sales. It, it's a subject line that gets you to go... If I don't open that email, I'm going to miss out. I had a quick look down my uh, email inbox on Thursday. Twelve emails from the past week had the word hurry in the title. It's clearly in the algorithm. Uh, The second was curiosity subject lines. Something like 80% off this surprise bestseller. it's It's a subject line that entices you by trying to tell you something that you don't know, a surprise, something to reel you in. All carefully calculated, all of these subject lines, all carefully calculated, often utterly deceptive. Normally pretty tactical, but always to boost open rates. Think about that very carefully next time you uh, have a look down your email inbox of people that you wouldn't normally receive emails from. But if verse 2 to 5 is Paul's subject line for the book of Romans, there's no careful deception or tactical craft. Paul can't help himself but get into the meat of what the gospel is all about. The, the letter begins with a summary of the gospel. 
He is a servant of the gospel. It's a deliberate filling out of his normal convention as you look across the books. He wants to talk about the message, the authenticity of the message, why his recipients should listen to this message. And so what's to listen to? Look, as we open up Paul's subject line, here's five quick appetizers we can read from those few verses. Look, verse one, it comes from God. The authority with which Paul speaks from, it's not his own. Look down at verse one, he's called by Jesus and set apart for the good news that has come from God. As we read Romans, Paul has recorded a book, he's written God's very own word with Jesus' authority for us. Verse 2, it's not new. This is the culmination of God's rescue plan for his people. This is not a suddenly plucked out of nowhere book that is a complete curveball in the biblical narrative. This is the culmination of God's rescue plan. And verse 3, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It centres on him. It's about a person, not a concept. It's Jesus, God's long-promised solution. But he pre-proves that he was man. He took on flesh. Do you see those words? As to his earthly life. That means he took on flesh. And he proved that he was always fully God. Do you read the words? The Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He proves that he was the Son of God. So he proves, Jesus, that he was both fully man and fully God. It's all about Jesus. Verse 5, it demands the obedience of faith. That is, just like Paul, when we truly grasp what the gospel is, the person of Jesus and what he's done, it inevitably must demand that we respond in obedience. And verse 5, it's for his name's sake, it's for his glory. At the heart of the gospel is a good God who deserves all the glory. And again, verse 5, it applies to everyone, for Jew and Gentile, specifically for Paul as he thinks and writes. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you're from, the gospel is for all kinds of people. When you walked into the room this afternoon, no matter your race, language, culture, no matter your shameful past, awful things you've experienced, this is the gospel for you. This is Paul's headline of the gospel. It comes from God, it's all about Jesus. It says promised throughout the Old Testament is for all people and it calls everyone to believe and obey. And so right up front, as Paul gives it to us, this gospel means that Jesus needs a response from you. It's like he's saying to you, I know everything about you and I gave up my life to death on a cross for you so that everything you've ever thought, every harsh word, wrong action, it no longer keeps you from being with God. 
but it's dealt with completely if you follow me. It's what Jesus' offer is. Have you accepted that offer? And if you haven't, it's really brilliant that you're here. And please, will you keep grappling with it? Because this is Paul's headline as we look at it, as we go through the book of Romans, this is what we'll see. Please, stay with us. Well, what's the purpose of his message? If that's the headline, what's the purpose of Paul's message? Why is it? Here's the big question, I think, for us this afternoon. Why is it that Paul feels the need to write a full explanation of the gospel to a church that have already accepted it? By what we can see, it's a church that's thriving, doing well. Not like other letters that he writes... There's no crippling issues or errors. This church seems to be doing well, striving. Well, have a look down at verse 12. He writes for encouragement. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. See, Paul's purpose is that both they and he may be built up as believers. It's clear that the way in which he's convinced, Paul is convinced he can build up the believers in the church in Rome is by preaching the gospel to them. Look at verse 8. Just have a look back to what we read about them. Their faith is being reported all over the world. And yet, what's Paul convinced that they need? They need to hear the gospel. They need to be encouraged in the gospel. And also, have a look at verse 13 and 14. His purpose is for lost people, it's for evangelism. Paul sees himself as obligated, or you could use the word indebted. Normally we think of debt as when um, we owe someone their money back. If you were to give me £10, then I'd be in debt. I'd owe you £10. I am in debt to you. But do you see here, Paul's obligation, his debt, is to Greeks and non-Greeks, wise and foolish. He's been given the good news of Jesus to take it out. He now owes it to others. If you were to give me £10 and say, you must give this £10 to Elise, who's at home with Reuben with chicken pox, and say, you've got to give it to her. Until the moment that I hand that £10 over to Elise, I'm in debt. Not to you, because you've given that money to someone else. I'm indebted to the recipient of that money. You see, Paul... He's obligated to pass on the message. Paul's obligation is to the harvest field that Jesus describes as being plentiful, especially going to the unreached places, the the Gentile world. We see that from his desperate desire to get to Rome. We see that from his desire to go west and into the Gentile world. See, for us, It's only when we grasp how amazing this good news about Jesus is that we'll partner in this work too. 
It might be that you you think, I just I just really don't really care about people who I know that don't trust Jesus. Or I don't really care about people who don't have the Bible in their own language. I, I don't really care for those people. Paul's answer is to go big picture on the gospel, to see the state of the human heart, to see the depth of the gospel through the book of Romans. And you see that's what, it, that's what we see in this big expansion of what the gospel is, so simple and yet meaty. The flow of the whole book takes us through problem in the first few chapters, solution and implication of the gospel. Maybe you think of that friend or family group, maybe even people group, place. Do you struggle to care enough to have any kind of convictional response as to going with the good news of Jesus? Maybe as we go through the book of Romans, you'll remember PSI, Problem, Solution, Implication. PSI, you know those um, the pump things at Tesco's where you pull up and you um, pump up your tyres and you've got PSI? I knew that it was PSI and it kept ringing in my ears but I had no idea what PSI stood for until this week. Anyone know what PSI stands for? Someone come Pounds on. Pounds per square inch. Pounds per square inch, thank you very much. There you go, Chris, of course. P-S-I. And it's like we get that in Romans. Problem, solution, implication. Problem, solution, implication. This year as we spend time walking through the book of Romans, Paul's intent is that we would know the gospel. We'd know that it is from God. It's about Jesus It demands a response from us. It's for everyone and it's for his glory. And so that means there is a universal problem that we'll see in the first few chapters of Romans. There is a solution of Jesus' rescue outlined so clearly for us. And then there's chapters on the actual implication of the difference the gospel makes to our living day to day. There's problem, solution, implication, PSI. As we dig into the rich truth of Romans this year, will we come to know and experience a person at the heart of this news? The Lord Jesus. Will we joyfully make him Lord? Respond to him? You see, Paul's convinced The gospel is essential for Christians to hear. This gospel is the means by which we live as Christians. This gospel is the fuel for our mission. We're to preach it to ourselves for our encouragement. And we're to preach it and hold it out to others. It's like Paul's headline to Romans is never move on. Never move on. 
See, maybe our inclination is to think that once we understand the gospel, we're ready for something a bit more. We can move on to something a bit deeper, some harder elements, some more interesting things of Christian life. Paul's inclination is to never move on, but rather to go deeper into the gospel truth itself. However long we've been familiar with the gospel, the scope and the magnitude and the wonder of God's mercy will never fail to amaze. It'll never fail to stretch our minds and our hearts as we look at the book of Romans this year. And so our prayer is that the thing Paul most desires to see, lives being transformed in obedience to God, the gospel being spread to all corners of the earth, God being glorified will become what we want as well. Paul was desperate that the church in Rome would both know the gospel and experience it. Look, whether you've been coming to town church, well, whether you're here for the first time today, whether you've been here for the last couple of weeks, whether you have been here for five years, or you've been going to church your whole life, whether you'd say you've been trusting Jesus for some time, or whether you're just working him out, the gospel is, is what Paul is convinced that we need. We expect, just like Paul, that every week of 2023, there might be a mix of people in the room at Town Church joyfully. Followers of Jesus, people that are stuck in, members that are here regularly, and guests. And Paul says, it's the gospel that we continually need to preach. To ourselves, to be encouraged in the faith. And it's the gospel that we need to encourage one another with. And it's the gospel that we need to hold out to others, to have their lives transformed by the good news of Jesus too. So let's pray. Father, we pray and we ask that this year you would keep us close to the good news of Jesus. Lord, as we look ahead to this time in Romans, Lord, please would you use it. Please would you use it to encourage us as Christians, Lord, please would you use it to open the eyes of those who are visiting and coming and having a look at who Jesus is. Lord, we pray that you would use it for your glory each week as we spend time in the book of Romans. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing together a song that speaks of the simple truths of the gospel. So let's stand and sing, Manus Horus, Lamb of God.